guess that's the end of the video. <laughs> Over the past few years, uh, I've become acquainted with a new term. Maybe some of you have known this term for quite some time. It was brand new for me. Uh, it's the term grifter. How many of you have ever heard the term grifter before? So some of you have. I never heard that this year. A grifter is a person who engages in scamming and swindling other people. Now, the alarming thing is that I learned that term for those who are speaking about the rash of Christian scandals within evangelical Christianity. But what's even more alarming is this. I am not only one of them, I'm a victim. And here's what I mean by that. I am an incredibly gifted self-swindler, and so are you. I think my motives are pure, even when my actions say they're not. Uh, I like to judge myself based upon my intentions and other people based on their actions. Uh, I like to judge others uh, too frequently. There's often gaps, sometimes very large gaps, between my aspirational values, the things I say I value, and the actual values that show up in my life. I don't know if you ever heard this formula or not, but your actual values are not your stated values. Your actual values are your stated values plus your real actions. If you really want to know what you actually value and what you believe, then take a look at what you really do because that's what you actually value. And if there's any book in the Bible that challenges us to reconcile uh, what we say we believe and what we actually do, it is the book of James. And so today we're starting off a new multi-week series teaching verse by verse through uh, the book of James titled Faith and Works. Uh, in the short five-chapter book, uh, James is going to reference uh, faith 14 different times. Uh, and out of the 108 verses in the book of James, he's going to toss out 59. So over half, 59 are going to be imperatives, which are also known as commands here in the book of James. And so what James is saying here is that your faith really does inform the way that you live, or at least it should. And the word for that is obedience. Now, if you're a parent in the room, you probably like the word obedience, am I right? Uh, if you're a child in the room, not so much, not as exciting. But obedience uh, is one of the hallmarks of genuine Christianity. Listen, Jesus himself said this in John chapter 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, obey me. And so sometimes when we talk about uh, obedience, there is a pushback uh, in current evangelical culture that what we're really promoting is uh, legalism, that people say, well, the, the gospel's not reduced to commands and do's and don'ts and those type of things. So what James is saying is, hey, that, that's not the gospel, but we also should, should elevate this idea that obedience is incredibly uh, important. You can't just hear the word. Uh, you have to be a doer of the word. And he makes a strong statement. He says, as a matter of fact, if obedience doesn't characterize your life, it's one of the evidences that, in fact, you are not genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ. So turn with me to chapter 1 in the book of James. Uh, it's right after the book of Hebrews, right before 1 Peter. And since we're kicking off a multi-week series through the book of James, let me provide some uh, context. And so James is going to help us lean into and hopefully reconcile any gap between faith and works. And he's also uh, going to focus on how our works impact other people. Maybe you've heard this phrase, your faith doesn't impact anyone but you, but the life you live or the works you do impact everyone around you. And so James is going to speak to that. He's going to speak to lots of subjects. He's going to talk about trials, which we'll explore today. He's going to talk about poverty. He's going to talk about riches. He's going to talk about favoritism, materialism. He's going to talk about the power of our words. Uh, he's going to touch on worldliness. He's going to touch on making plans. He's going to touch on prayer. He's going to even touch on what we should do uh, when we're sick. And so James is fast-paced. Uh, there is a 
lot of topics, and he's all over the place. In the words of the great prophet's house of pain, James is going to jump around. Amen? You're like, I don't know what that song is. You're not going to heaven, all right? So even though he's going to be moving fast, it's very street-level, practical uh, Christianity. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's also the leader at the church in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21. Now, he's primarily writing to Jewish Christians who were scattered after Stephen's death. And so we uh, were here through our study of the book of Acts. You know that Paul, or Saul of Tarsus at that time, was persecuting the church. And so because of that persecution, they began to disperse all over the place because of safety. And so James, uh, who was once a skeptic of his own brother and his messiahship, is leading the church that Jesus is building. And so uh, in this epistle, James is laying out some benchmarks, uh, some benchmarks for the testing of our faith. And he begins was something all of us can relate to, trials, all right? So let's pick up here in James chapter one. We're gonna read down through verse 12 this morning. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, so dispersions, they're dispersed because of persecution, greetings. Then he starts off with this jewel in verse two. Counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Pastor was speaking many, many years ago on the subject of trials, and he offered this insight. He said, when it comes to trials, you're either in one, you're coming out of one, or you're headed towards one. Can I get an amen? Is that not what life feels like sometimes? It's nothing but a series of connected trials one after another. I told someone recently, I said, I think that God is very uh, concerned that I might be ruined by wealth. And so what God has been doing over the past year is smiting my cars and any appliance or thing in my house so that I'm not ruined with wealth. And full disclosure, I'm not grateful for his mercy in sending those trials. Think about this. So much of our life is spent on trial avoidance. And there's nothing wrong with uh, planning. It's, it's preventative maintenance. So that, listen, if you're talking about a car or a house or relationship or your health, Preventative maintenance is a wise endeavor, but if we're not careful, when trials come, not if, but when they come, and they do so with such force that it blows your preventative maintenance out of the water, then guess what? If you're not careful, you'll no longer consider it joy. Like verse 2 says, you'll become bitter and angry at God when trials come your way. Instead of seeing them as something that's embraced for our spiritual profit, instead of seeing them as whatever it is still under the control of a God who is sovereign over all of your circumstances, you'll become very bitter 
very quickly. So before we jump into the text, uh, let's make sure we're clear on what a trial is and what a trial is not. Because so many times uh, people say things like, you know, I'm just in a trial. And I said, well, may, that may be true. Let's talk through that. And begin to explain kind of things. And I said, well, I don't exactly think that's a trial. I think that may be something else. So let me identify some things that a trial is not. Okay? So a trial is not a parallel to temptation. Temptation is a desire to move away from God, where a trial is God moving towards me to mature my faith. Now, where they're similar is that oftentimes temptation and trials are difficult to navigate. But a temptation is brought on either by Satan from without or from my wicked heart from within, and a trial is allowed by God to refine me or mature me to make me more like Jesus. So the end result of a trial is I'm more like Jesus if I respond correctly. The end result of giving into temptation is I'm less like Jesus. So it's not the same as a, or a parallel to temptation. A trial is not also a punishment. If you're a Christian, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? There's no punitive punishment from God that Jesus Christ bore all the wrath of God on the cross on our behalf. And yes, there's discipline, but that's redemptive in nature. It's training in righteousness is what Hebrews talks about. But it's not punishment. God does not punish people over their sins. And I've heard that so many times. And so that's not what a trial is either. And the third thing, that a trial is not necessarily a consequence of sin. Many times when people say, I'm just walking through a trial, and they begin to explain the difficulties of their lives. Sometimes it's the, not a trial. It's the natural consequences of their sin. The great prophet John Wayne said this. He said, life is hard, and if you're dumb, it's even harder. Amen? There's wisdom in that. That's in the book of Second Hesitations. Look it up, all right? So trial is not the same as the consequence of your sin. So what is a trial? Well, defined by the dictionary... A trial is a test to assess something or someone's suitability. In biblical terms, a trial helps prove whether a person is truly a Christian by testing the genuineness of our faith and also maturing that faith if it is, in fact, genuine. So that, that's what a trial is. That's some things that it's not. So let's get into the text and see what James teaches us about these God-ordained trials. First thing I want you to see in this passage is this. Embrace trials because they mature us. Embrace trials because they mature us. Go back to verse 2 and 4 again and listen to these words. And as we read these words together, think about how you often respond to trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Can we just stop and go home? Amen. Can we just repent and confess that that is not how I usually respond to trials? He says, consider, for you know. Why? Because he tells us in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. That word perfect also is the word translated mature, lacking in nothing. And so here's what he's teaching in verses 2 through 4, that in the economy of God, trials are used to develop me and mature me in Jesus Christ. And I hope that all of us want maturity in Christ. I'm assuming that's why you're here today, to grow spiritually. But here's what is true about me, and I'm guessing it's true about you. If I were God, I would have chosen something else besides trials to produce spiritual maturity in my life. Amen? 
I just said, hey, what about this? And this is a good idea, and I kind of like this. Can we do this? And God says, no, no, no. This is the God-ordained means, trials to produce in you a maturity that would not be present in your life apart from trials. One writer said this, apart from trials or to wish for life, apart from trials, is to desire to remain a spiritual baby. God's plan for trials in your life is they are part of the God-ordained means to make you more like Jesus. Let me repeat that because that's the only thing you learn about trials then, then this sermon has served you well. Because if you don't understand this, then when a trials hit, you're gonna doubt God, you're gonna doubt his provision, you're gonna doubt, begin to doubt your faith, you're gonna become bitter at God, angry at God, why me, why now, why them? And so let me repeat that. God's plan for trials in your life is there a part of the God-ordained means to make you more like Jesus. And if we don't understand that, then we'll never get the full benefit of a trial. It will never make us better. It will only make us bitter. It will never grow us in faith. It will cause us to grow in doubts. It'll never draw us closer to the Lord. It'll cause us to run from the Lord in anger. On your very last day, if you were to count up all the thousands of trials in your life, you need to know that all of them were meant for your good. One writer said this, God has never wasted a hurt. That when painful trials come into our life, that God uses all of those. And if we can on the front end agree with that and live out of that truth, then guess what? When they come, you'll understand God's purpose in that. There's a recent documentary out on Tom Brady, who is now the quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I know that Tom Brady, especially the New England Tom Brady, gets served up a lot of haterade. Am I right? But I think we can all appreciate the wisdom in this statement when he said this in the documentary. Listen to what he said. He said, I didn't learn as much from my wins as I did from my losses. In other words, those losses tested his resolve. It caused him to question his preparation and his commitment to the game and his commitment to his teammates. And it caused the depth of his devotion to be challenged to a sport. Now, we've said something over the years in a spiritual arena, which is this. That seasons of adversity produce more spiritual growth than seasons of blessing in your life. But can I just be honest? I'm not praying for them to come, right? I'm often not joyful when they do. As a matter of fact, I'm praying for blessing far more than I'm praying for, for adversity. As a matter of fact, if we're being honest, very few of us lay our heads down at night and say, Lord, my life is too blessed. Would you just send some really painful adversity into my life so that I can become more like you? Right? And if you told me, like, I pray that way all the time, you know what I'd be tempted to say? Then what you're doing at night, you're hitting the peace pipe before you go to bed. Amen? <laughs> What's wrong with you, right? I never pray for that, but it is the God-ordained means. And so I have to look at this biblical view and realize there is a great purpose in my trials. God uses those to grow me in faith. Otherwise, listen, apart from, if, if everything just came into my life and was all blessing, I'd have no need of God. If everything came in my life was easy and smooth sailing, I'd have no reason to turn to God in dependent prayer. I'd have no reason to see God as my source and my sustainer. Apart from trials, I would never turn to the Lord. I would be tempted to think that I have all the resources right here to handle every single challenge life offers me apart from God-ordained Trials, and so that's why he says, hey, brothers, listen, consider it all joy when trials come into your life. Why? Because look what James says in verses three and four. 
that the testing of your faith or trials produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so what he's saying is, hey, if you want your spiritual life to be fully developed, you have to embrace this truth. That will never happen apart from God-ordained trials, according to verses 2, 3, and 4. That's exactly what he's saying. Listen, I don't want that to be true, but that's exactly what the text is teaching here. That if you want the end result, I'm lacking nothing in my faith in verse 4, you've got to start with God-ordained trials in verse 2. And why? Consider it all joy because I know the end game. That I'm going to become more like Jesus. More so than I would if God had just left me to all blessings and smooth sailing. And I love the language that James uses here. So honest. He says, when you go through various trials, the only thing about trials that is consistent is they are inevitable and constant. Other than that, did you know that trials can come in all shapes and sizes? They're so varied is what he's saying here. This week we encountered a trial in our life. It was a very unique shape. It was in the shape of a sectional couch. We bought that couch. It was the right budget. I said, Tosh, here's so much we have. And we go there, and it's God's favor in our life. It's the exact price of the money we have. It's beautiful. Tasha, this is the right color, this all that kind of stuff. And we get it home, and it will not fit down the basement. We're up there taking part of the door jam off, sweating. Tasha's cursing. It's ugly. I just want to, I share that as a prayer request, all right? And let me tell you this. It is a beautiful couch. It looks great in our uh, garage right now set up <laughs> won't go down I said what about if we cut it in half she said I don't think that's a good solution and that little irritation you know what happens that little irritation that little thing if I'm not careful all of a sudden that becomes a snowball in my life and, and now God's against me and, and the whole universe is plotting against me and then when a trial comes I don't view it as anything God ordained I view it as part of a fallen world no matter how big or small or complicated or devastating the trial, God intends to grow me through each and every one. Many of us have heard even personally experienced maybe when someone experiences a devastating health trial that it actually sharpens them spiritually. That while their body may be failing, their inner man is flourishing. They become more in tune to God in prayer. They become more dependent on His mercy they become more centered on the word because they're looking for something to sustain them. And so, so many times in a health trial, our faith flourishes. Uh, it, sometimes in an economic trial or times of economic collapse, we learn clearly that God, not money, is our source and our sustainer. And we never would have learned that apart from an economic collapse. And because those things are clearly learned in the midst of trials, we need to ask ourselves a hard question. The question comes right out of the text, and it's this. As a general rule of thumb, when trials overtake us, would people still describe us as a person of joy? Not because the circumstance made us happy, but because there's a settled confidence that God is at work. That, that's what joy is. Joy is not pleasant circumstances. Joy is a settled confidence in the character of God who's sovereign over the situation and who's at work in my life through this season of trial. So when trials come our way, the question we should ask is, 
Do we, as the text says, consider it all joy? Would people describe us as people of joy? Now, if you like practical preaching, say amen. Good. I want to tell you actually how to make joy in the midst of trials an actual value and not just an aspirational one. And here's what I would encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to begin to think about the future version of you. That when you realize that God has sent a trial into your life, begin to think, meditate, not not on what's going on, not how painful it is, I'm not diminishing any of those things, but begin to think about the future version of you. The one who will experience the presence of Jesus when he walks with you through the fire and the person who's spiritually better, not in spite of the trial, but because of it. Not because it wasn't painful, but because it was profitable. Not only joy because of the full confidence that Christ is at work in me, but joy because of the possibility that my joy in the midst of a painful season will be a tangible way that I can point other people to Jesus Christ. They should look at our lives and say, man, there's something different about you. When hard times comes, you don't get bitter, you don't complain, you just feel filled with more joy. When, when life is not going well, I hear you talking about Jesus more, not less. I'm going to tell you something you may not know. As a society, it's been a rough few years. Did, did you know that? <laughs> and one of my concerns over the last two or three years is that Christians have not responded any better than non-Christians. We complain just as much. We're just as nasty on social media. We're just as divisive when it comes to politics. And if we do that, if we fail to be people of joy, we're missing an incredible opportunity to show people the real tangible difference that having a relationship with Jesus Christ makes in your life. And if people don't see there's any difference in your life, then all they'll see is you just have a, another obligation. You go to church on the weekend, and most people have way too many obligations in their life. And so here's what I'm telling you. I would argue that right now, being a consistently joy-filled Christian may be one of the most evangelistic things you and I could do to demonstrate the gospel to those who need it in this season that we're living through in our culture. Trials in your life are inevitable. God intends to use all of them for your good and his glory and a witness to those who are watching as you walk through them. What else do we see in the text about how to view our trials? Uh, secondly, I would encourage you to do this, to trust God's heart when you cannot see his hand. And that's a little cliche, but what we mean by that is this, that there are times that if a trial is so severe, you are so disoriented by it, you, you can't even, you can barely see straight in front of you, it's so painful to walk through that trial, that in those moments when you look at the pain of your circumstance, you can't fathom how God is gonna use this for your good and his glory. And in those moments, the only thing I can cling to is the character of God. If we're really honest this morning, we don't always see our trials the way that God sees them. We're nearsighted, we're pessimistic. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we wonder if God's really in control. You ever prayed in the midst of a really painful season to inform God as if he were ignorant, right? Right? Oh, God, my life is falling apart, right? Oh, God, I don't know if you're aware of this, what's going on. Oh, God, help us. The sectional won't make the turn. Pivot, right? Like it never. 
Sometimes we begin to, if the trial is severe enough, we begin to doubt the goodness of God. I've got lots of stories over the years that the trial was super painful. Not only did people doubt the goodness of God, they began to doubt the existence of God. If there was a God, then my life wouldn't be so hard. And so, how do we know when this is happening? Well, we begin to complain against God. We blame Him instead of trying to learn from Him. We're unsure of what to do because under duress, uh, my experience is this, when I get in a trial and I'm not responding the way that God wants me to respond, uh, I start getting short with other people. Another indicator you're not trusting God is, in fact, rebelling against Him is, you just, you, you just quit. Maybe this means emotionally shutting down. Maybe this means up and leaving a, a job or a spouse or some kind of responsibility, cutting people off. And here's what we think, that somehow a change of scenery would produce a change of heart. But can I just say this? You can run as far and as fast as you want, and you're going to take that bitter heart to the next place with you. And the problem is this, is that while God is at work in, in our hearts in the midst of this trial, God's trying to do a work in us. We just abandon ship. We can't see his hand at work in the situation. One of the mistakes I often make is when I think about giving up is this, is I only go to other people for advice. Now, here's been my experience over the years. I don't know why this is true. But many times when people are struggling, they go to other people who are also struggling with the same thing. That's what sociologists call pulled ignorance. You ever ask a teenager, why did you do that? And they say this, well, I talked to my friends. What? I was struggling this relationship, so I went to this other friend. They, too, are struggling this relationship. I'm terrible with money. I went to this other person. They, too, are terrible with money. Now, Scripture does say in Proverbs, there's safety in the multitude of counselors. So you and I should avail ourselves to wise, godly counsel. Scripture talks about that, but, but here's what I also want to tell you according to the text. You don't only have to go to other people who have limits on their knowledge, experience, and wisdom. You can actually go to the top of the food chain on this one. In fact, that's exactly what James tells us to do, and he does so in the form of a command. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand if you're sitting next to someone who lacks wisdom. Would you just right now? you raised your hand, you lack wisdom, all right? Because it's on. Now, I hear this all the time. If we need wisdom, uh, pray and God will give it, and that's true. But, but the specific context of this text is you're lacking wisdom in a trial. Now, what does that look like? What he's saying is if you're in the midst of a trial and you have no idea what God is trying to teach you, you have no wisdom about what the Lord is trying to do in your life through this trial, what's he say to do? If you lack wisdom in the context of a trial, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Yes, I should go to councils. Yes, I should go to pastors. Yes, I should go to godly Christian friends. But that's not the only place I should go to. I can go to the top of the food chain and ask of God for wisdom in the midst of my trial, and he gives it generously. To never go to the source 
It would be like me wanting to know what it's like to play professional football on a good team and asking a player for the Browns. Amen? You say that? And it makes sense, right? Think about that. In the midst of your trials, God's inviting you. Hey, come to me. Yes, there's safety in a multitude of counsel, but make sure that God is at the top of the counseling ladder. He's saying, come to me, and then he makes a promise, and what he's saying is this. He's saying, hey, I'm going to give generously without reproach. What does that mean? It means he'll supply you the wisdom that you need for what he's trying to accomplish in your life through this trial. And the word without reproach, what it says is this, is that God is not irritated you're coming to him. God does not begrudge the fact that you're asking him over and over. As a matter of fact, just the opposite, he delights in it. And he says, I'll dispense wisdom gladly and overwhelmingly. And there are times when it is so hard to see how God is at work in a painful trial. But what I have to do is trust the character of God. And the character of God says this, hey, when you're struggling for that wisdom, come to me. Come to me. I'll give you wisdom about what I'm trying to accomplish in your life, and it may take a little while, but not only will I give it to you, I'll do so overwhelmingly, and I'll do so generously. I'm not upset you're coming to me. He delights in our dependence. God is like the parent of a teenager who's thrilled when their child comes to them for advice instead of trying to learn everything in school of hard knocks. The truth that we can ask God and God will give generously without reproach is, listen, it may be one of the most encouraging truths in all the Bible. That you're in a painful trial. Your life has been flipped upside down and the God of the universe says, hey, you may think it's small and insignificant, but if you come to me, you can't see my hand, but you trust my heart, you trust the character, then I will respond this way. It is a promise, and every promise is as sure as the character of God itself. Words of the old hymn are true. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Listen to this third verse. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And when we do, what does he say? I will give generously and without reproach. Here's what that means in layman's terms. God will never respond to you. Oh, it's you again. Without reproach. So we shouldn't just go to other people or Google we can go directly to ask for God, but James then addressed another issue with our prayers. Sometimes we don't go to God in prayer. We run from God in bitterness. But then he also says when we do sometimes go to him, we doubt him. He likens us to the wave of a sea that's tossed about by the wind. Maybe God, maybe God will be delighted. Maybe he'll give wisdom. Maybe he'll sustain me. Maybe there's kind of, We're doubting him in prayer. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says when you do go to God in prayer, verse 5, Verse 6 and 7, it says, but let him ask in faith. What does that mean? I mean that God's promise in verse 5 is true. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, if you come to God and ask for wisdom, but really that's riddled with doubt, and you think, I don't think God's trying to do something in me. I feel like God's doing something to me. I don't think that God's going to teach me what he's trying to teach me. He says, listen, if that's how you're coming to me in prayer, verse 5, your life will be unstable, verse 6, and you will not receive the wisdom that I promised, verse 7. As a matter of fact, the ultimate overflow is your life, you'll be a double-minded man, unstable in all of your ways, verse 8. One of the clearest signs that we're doubting in prayer, not praying with faith, is we get impatient waiting on God to respond. I don't know about you, but that's a hard one for me because can I just be honest with you? Patience sounds like a spiritual word for lazy. Am I right? But patience is actually a form of dependence. Patience is a testimony that we trust the character of God who is always on time. And so I keep going to God in prayer. I keep persisting in prayer. I keep prevailing in prayer. Why? Because I trust the character of God, that God will do what he said he's going to do in verse 5. So I go to him with full faith, verses 6. and So let me draw one final brief thought. We're almost out of time, but this is too important to skip over because you can agree with everything I just said and taught and still not got the benefit of the perfecting work of trials and how God uses them to assure us. So here's the third truth I want you to see very quickly. It's simply this. Don't run. I've watched for years. I've never, I still don't understand it. 21 years I've watched this. Hard times hit people's lives and they run from the church and the Lord instead of to the church and the Lord. I, I've watched it. I, I didn't understand it. That trials come they're a God-ordained means. God is at work moving towards me in a trial, not abandoning me, moving towards me to do something inside of me. And when trials come, people run away from the church and the Lord instead of to the church and the Lord. I've watched literally thousands of people over the last 21 years get out of church, and I would guess well over half of them is because somewhere their life got hard. And so they ran away from the church and the Lord. Verse 12, look at what he says. We're almost done. Verse 12. Blessed is the man. Now, if you're here and you just, if you want to be blessed, raise your hand. If you just, it's up to you. If your hand's not up, I know what's wrong with you. What's he say? Blessed is the man who, gives a qualifier, who remains steadfast under trial. The word under there, it's the Greek word hupateo. It means literally to remain under. It's what that means. Blessed is the man who remains under that trial, as opposed to running away in anger and bitterness, who remains under that trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, if you do a little study on the crowns in Scripture, there's five of them. A crown of life is actually a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life. So what is verse 12 saying? Very quickly, here's what he's saying. Enduring trials faithfully is a sign that a person is truly saved. In the parable of the soils, we're told that some of the seed got burned up by the sun. That's a picture of a false convert who has no fruit because 
that they withered under the heat of life in a fallen world. And so when the harvester, Jesus, came, there was nothing to harvest because the trials of life in a fallen world burned that seed up. And if there's no fruit from enduring faith, there's no actual conversion. And so what does he say there? Blessed is the man who reigns steadfast under trial. Why? Because if we're connected to the Lord, here's what he's saying. He will sustain us and mature us, and trials are for our good. Here's what I want you to understand, and we're done. Trials, biblically understood, are a tangible gift of God's grace. And what they teach us is this, is that Jesus loves us too much to leave us how he found us. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask two questions. Number one, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you been saved? And coming to Jesus for salvation doesn't guarantee that your life is going to be easy. But he does promise to be with us in the midst of life's hardest seasons. And if you think that going through trials with Jesus is hard, try going through life without him. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, right now, right where you're seated, would you pray right now and ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Would you confess your sins? Would you agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day? And would you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? right now. Would you do that? If you're here and you don't know Christ, would you pray and accept him as your Lord and Savior? For those of you in the room who do know Jesus Christ, let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hands, but I wonder how many of us in the room this morning would say one of a few things. That life has been hard, unusually hard in this season. And I've allowed the difficulties of life to rob me of my joy. Not that it's easy, not that we're minimizing suffering, but you've allowed that trial to water a seed of bitterness in your heart. And that bitterness has crowded out all the joy in your life. Maybe you're here and you're doubting that this hard season, it's a trial. Maybe you feel like God, in fact, is punishing you. Maybe you feel like, in fact, that God has abandoned you. Maybe you feel like God's not interested. That God is moving away from you, not towards you. If that's you this morning, would you just right now, would you just tell the Lord, I believe. I believe that every trial is you moving towards me, not away from me. I believe that through this trial, you're producing in me good things. I believe that through this, you are making me more like Jesus. And would you pray right now, God, give me the grace to remain under this trial so that I can get all the benefit of what you're trying to do in my life. I believe you and I trust you. Would you pray that right now? Father, we are so grateful that, yes, the Word of God gives us 
wisdom and instruction about life after death, but God, it is so rich when it comes to living life faithfully before death. And God, we're all very aware that trials and difficulty are, are part of life, but Lord, I pray that today, that this week as we encounter trials, that God, they would actually strengthen and renew our faith, that we would actually believe that a trial is you moving towards us to help us become more like Jesus, not away from us. God, help us to be in a culture of anger and division and hatred. Help us to be marked as people of joy. Not because life is hard, but because Christ sustains us in the midst of our trials. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. We need it. We're desperate people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.